This is Jordan Edwards, and this is the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon, Dad. Good afternoon, son. Uh, well, definitely my most special podcast guest that I've ever had on. Uh, sorry to everybody else, to the world champions and Navy SEALs and billionaires, but uh, my dad definitely takes the prize, at least in my own rankings. Yeah, I disagree with you, but yeah, so for that. <laughs> Uh, I want to re read something that I wrote about you that um, was on the back cover of your first book, Coming Into Your Own. Um, I wrote, my father is as comfortable entertaining a prime minister as he is speaking with a cab driver. I've been elbow to elbow with, with my dad as he negotiated with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and I've witnessed him inspire hundreds of my friends through his blog, where there seemed like there was no hope during the Great Recession. What it all boils down to is my father loves business and loves to live his life. Although he never read the Stoics, he's a Stoic philosopher. Although he never attended business school, he's a student of business. I'm lucky to have him as my father, mentor, and coach. When he shared his simple philosophy through his blog, he had no idea how many it would inspire. So thank you, Dad, for having the courage to turn your blog, which I have right here printed out, which is it all started with this puppy that I had made into a coffee table book for you. Thank you for having the card to turn your blog into a book. This one, coming into your own. So after, back the memories? After five or six years, you still feel the same way. You want to rewrite it. <laughs> Let's see how many years it is. We play this game all the time, and we it's, you have a hard time keeping the timeline. This book was published in 2017. There you go. Right. Five or six years. So, boy, did that go fast. Yeah. However, with that said, uh, I don't think our relationship has changed. If anything, it's grown deeper because we've done so many things together, so many business opportunities, personal opportunities, families growing, children being born, businesses being born. So I, I think we've just grown stronger. And, uh, you know, in your personal life, at some point you go from being the caregiver to the care getter. So, you know, I was the caregiver to you for the first 30 some odd years of your life, mostly in the first 13 or 14 years. And then you went away to boarding school and then, and became very independent. And then now I'm the recipient. Now I'm the care getter because I often find myself learning and listening to you. So life really has a, a full cycle. Yeah, that is a that is a funny way of looking at it. And if you think about life in cycles, you know, when you started writing your blog, it was as the Great Recession was kicking in. I was just graduating from college. You know, my friends and I all graduated in, in 2007, 2008. Uh, me, most of my friends in seven and then me in 2008 because I went to Northeastern University. I had that extra year with the co-op program. And so I was coming out uh, into what was about to be at the time greatest recession since the, uh, the Great Depression. Very scary time. My friends were losing their jobs. People had no hope. There was nothing going on in business. And you started, you, you said, put me on a blog. So I actually pulled it up here. Let me see if I could uh, share my screen for a second. And I will show for those of you who are listening, I am navigating to glennedwardsblog.com. I have it here as glennedwardswordpress.com, but it's also available at glennedwardsblog.com. It's still live. I keep paying the bill every month, and uh, and all of your writing 
is still there. Yeah, it's so funny. funny. It's so funny because in the last uh, six, uh, what year was that? 19, uh, 2009. Uh, Your first blog post ever was, I have it right here. I pulled it up. Was in Wednesday, June 24th, 2009. So 13 years later, not only hasn't my messages, the messages haven't changed at all, but I've changed a lot. I mean, I've grown so much and have become so much more independent. I used to have to call you every time and say, could you post the blog for me? Can you edit it for me? Uh, today, I know how to edit it. I know how to post it. And I probably wouldn't even write it anymore. I'd just say, hey, look, I have the topic and let me go on chat. Uh, let's go chat IMB that I wrote to you this morning. Chat GPT. Uh, chat GPT. I'd go on chat GPT. I'd say... Let's talk about how to survive a, a, the most severe recession of all time when you just got out of college. And six seconds later, I'd have the most amazing essay blog, better than I could ever write. But I understand how to do that now. It is and true. You did it this morning. So I told you, and I said to you, Jordan, I have something to say. Can you post it for me? Can you edit it for me? Can you get it, can you get it up? And I, I, I really was so dependent upon you technologically uh, at the beginning, 13 years ago, we really started working together full time. And uh, today, because of the ease of technology, because of the brilliance of all these uh, software developers, they've learned to be so intuitive that they told old guys like me that we could do it independently. And especially if you're willing to try, if you're willing to just make lots of mistakes and keep trying and trying till you get it, and figure it out like I just had to do with my scanner and my Microsoft with my <laughs> HP account and it wouldn't let me scan. I finally said, I'm going to get this thing no matter what. I'm not calling Jordan. I'm not calling Eugene. I'm not calling our IT guy. Matt's off this week. I'm figuring this thing out. Of course, eventually I figured it out. <laughs> and it wasn't yeah. easy. But I got it. So, you know, the world has changed. and uh, But the messages that I have have been consistent since... I started learning from my father and they really haven't changed. The messaging is still essentially the same. The processing of the of messages have changed dramatically. Well, why don't you talk about that a little? So you can, I work in a family business. You're my business partner uh, in fashion and real estate amongst all of our other investing that we've done together and business creation. But when you were growing up, grandpa had a very different business. Why don't you give a little, background of what it was like growing up in the uh, 60, you know, you were born in 58. So in the 60s and what businesses and life was like then? So my father was the, the not madman or the person you saw in, in that uh, television show or movie uh, about the guy that went to the city with a briefcase, smoked a cigarette and was very, very cool. My father was the kind of guy that got up at 5, 36 o'clock in the morning, put on a tie, but went to work. He was picking up housekeepers at their homes in uh, Roosevelt, Long Island. That's the same place that Howard Stern came from. And, and Eddie Murphy. And then drop, and Eddie Murphy and Julia Serving, and then dropping them off at the homes of his customers, and then working during the day, whatever he had to do to make a buck, 
and in the afternoon picked them up, he charged a fee for it. That's how the whole thing started uh, where we were in a private business. And uh, from that business, he was really smart, worked really hard. He kept innovating and creating. At the time, innovation and creating had nothing to do with technology. It really had to do with grinding. It had to do with getting up earlier and working later and coming up with ideas that there was a little spread, a little bit of profit. And if you did a lot of volume, you made more money. So if you took out uh, 30 housekeepers a week, as he did probably mm -hmm. in his first year, by the time he was in business four or five years, he was taking out 300 housekeepers a week. He had bought, instead of taking them out in his station wagon running up and around, he had bought a school bus, an actual school bus, and was taking out 30 or 40 on two shifts a day for about 60 a day, five days a week for about 300 housekeepers. Uh, that was how the whole thing started. I started going into the office as early as probably when I was born because uh, uh, grandma always uh, walked us to the office because the office was nearby. I don't have memories of that, but I do have memories of being four, five, and six years old. And for a couple pennies or maybe to get a soda out of the soda machine, uh, if I emptied all the trash cans, and helped out with the little tasks that grandpa asked me to do. He'd give me a couple pennies and I had a job. And back in those days, especially when I was young, I could still feel the grit on these garbage cans. Like today with plastic garbage cans, the garbage can was this heavy metal can that would last for 50 years. It was probably made of copper. It was very heavy for a young kid. It was very sticky and dirty. And that was the garbage cans we used to have in that little storefront in Limbrook, Long Island, where your office still is. That's where it all started. Yeah. And then uh, I continued working. But by the time I was six or seven years old, a fellow in the neighborhood, much older than me, who was probably 12 or 13, 14 years old, had a paper route. And he used to pay me a penny a paper to deliver papers in the neighborhood. So at six or seven years old, you can't even imagine a kid doing that today. Could you imagine Axel in two years starting to deliver newspapers? Yeah. But not only was I delivering them to homes, I was delivering them by the time I was six or seven years old, to bars and to these shanties that used to be in our neighborhood, uh, in these boat yards, and dropping them off. I, it's so hard to imagine it today, but that's what we did. By the time I was nine years old, I had my own paper route. It was younger than everybody else, but I was always a hustler. I always wanted to make money. And uh, by the time I was 12, I had three paper routes. My brothers, who were older than me, had none at that time. Uh, and I was had paying people to deliver newspapers by the time I was 12 years old. It was crazy. I had like a business. All I used to do around was collect the money on Friday nights and go pick up the money. But uh, it's just a, it, life is such an interesting journey. And if you're lucky enough to live long enough, you get to tell these stories to your children. Well, you do detail some of those in your first book, which are great, uh, you know, lessons for me and for everybody, you know, all my friends who read it. And, uh, and these were the lessons of the blog, simple business truths that you've learned over your decades working as a young person and then going into business with grandpa. And I think it's interesting to dissect um, when you were coming out of college, because we've talked about this so many times, like how unsexy what you did was compared to like what the world was. I mean, you graduated from college in 1980. This was like the epitome of Gordon Gecko, greed is good. And every one of my friends 
dads, all of my like pseudo uncles and best family friends, everybody, every one of these guys was a Wall Street guy for the most part. You know, we lived on Long Island in New York and right on the doorstep in New York City. And so when you came out of college and all your friends went to Wall Street, you went to go work in this housekeeper delivery business. And I mean, it, it's only sexy, you know, when you became successful, but maybe you could just describe like what you went into, you know, 10 foot wide, 40 foot long, three yeah. employees, <laughs> you know, it was it exactly a sexy so business. My brothers, we, my brothers both uh, took the track of going towards medicine. Uh, being a doctor was probably even more impressive at that point than going to Wall Street. Definitely more impressive than becoming an attorney. The smartest kids went to medical school. The second smartest kids went to dental school. Third smartest kids went to law school. But the real thing was that all the parents wanted the kids to have a profession. They didn't want them to struggle. They didn't want them to uh, be in retail businesses, small family businesses, or even big family businesses like their own. They, they kind of resented those businesses and encouraged their children to get higher education and then to get what they called almost a cushy guaranteed job. Rob Kiyosaki talks about that a lot. The privilege of education entitles you to a great life. And, uh, you know, I didn't see it that way. I, I was a salesman from the time that I started delivering newspapers. I love selling. When I turned 17, as you read and know firsthand, I, my grandpa gave me the keys to the car, bought me a suit and said, go drop off these flyers at these few hospitals in the neighborhood and ask them to call us and order uh, companions from us. From the very first time I went out, I got that click, that click of success, that when you go out and you smile, you shake a hand and, and they meet you and greet you, even as a 17 year old, and by the time you get back, the phone's ringing and they're ordering help from, from our company. I said, wow, this is so cool. You go out, you ask someone to call you, and then they actually call you. Wow, that's business. So I got sales right away, and I was really very successful. Did it all through college. And then about when my, the end of my sophomore year, when grandparent, my grandparents were trying to encourage me to be a lawyer. Why? Because our parents had a, our grandparents, your grandparents, my parents had a small business. They, they made a nice living, but it was a small living but they lived well enough. They were happy. Uh, and then my, both my brothers were going to be doctors. They were older than me. And my parents said, you have to become a lawyer. Why do I have to become a lawyer? I want to be in the business. What's it to become to the business? I said, no, it's going to be great. I want to go into the business. And grandpa welcomed me in with both arms. Uh, so I worked straight through college. Every weekend, I used to go home and work on the weekends because I went to school on Long Island. And uh, on the holidays and the summers, I worked and kept building the business. So by the time I got out of college, the business was really ready to accept me and ready to accept all the opportunities that would, were to come in the next few years. Yeah. So not to fast forward over your whole career and the, uh, you know, the, the great track record you had, but maybe kind of skip to the, from the beginning to the end. So from 1980, when you came into the graduate from college to 2005, when you sold the business, you entered a business that was 
like I said, in one office that was 10 feet wide and 40 feet long with three administrative workers. And then when you sold the business in 2005, you're one of the largest home healthcare businesses in the East Coast and in the country, certainly one of the largest privately held. And you had grown the business to 7,000 field service workers and you were had 25 offices in 10 states. It was certainly not the business you joined. No, as a matter of fact, it was the by the time I sold the company or decided to sell the company, it was the exact opposite of the business I joined. And that was one of my primary reasons for selling the company. But uh, I'll give you the history. So I joined the family business. Uh, the first thing we did was revamp the business a little when I joined it. Um, it was ready for me. The home healthcare industry was just emerging, it was a cottage industry. Before we were in the business, we were a for-profit company. Most of the people did home health care and did it as a not-for-profit world with visiting nurse services or other not-for-profits, charitable organizations. But the for-profit world for home health care was just emerging, and we were on the cusp of it as I joined the company. So I uh, didn't have a business degree. I had a sociology degree from Stony Brook with a minor in child care studies. My business degree was learned on the job. And when I first joined the company, we didn't have accountants on staff. We didn't have bookkeepers on staff. We didn't have marketing departments. There was nothing. It was just a grinding business with uh, going out and finding customers and then finding the right workers to do those jobs. But when you and when you have a small business, that's perfectly fine. If the right hand knows what the left one's doing, you can run a really nice business. But when the east and west get separated by miles, you the right hand doesn't know what the left one's doing. You got to get professionals in there. So along the way, we hired some really great talent uh, that came in and joined us because we we didn't have meteoric growth by uh, by Facebook standards. We didn't become a billion dollar business or a unicorn company as they talk about all these private equity investments today. But we went from 400,000 or 300,000. No, when I joined the company in 1980, my father had $250,000 in sales. By the end of the second year, we had about close to 2 million in sales. And it was unbelievable. We were having a freaking great time. It was crazy. <laughs> you know, I was I got a new car. Grandma and grandpa got a, a Cadillac. It was really a lot of fun. We had just so much fun doing this. And we took the company from a very, very small mom and pop with a couple employees. All of a sudden, we probably had about eight or nine, 10 employees coming to the office. Uh, we were squeezed in so tight. We grew the business so rapidly that uh, on payroll day, when the workers would come in for the payroll, they'd be lined out through the, because we used to give checks out in those days, not like today. <laughs> they'd line up in, into the office. Grandpa would have the checks already cut, and they'd be lined up around the block to the point that our the businesses next to us started complaining. We can't run our businesses with these people waiting to get paid. It was just <laughs> crazy on Friday. That thought hasn't come to me in years, by the way, until we just started this conversation. I guess so that's what having this blog conversation is about. And then we grew to a second store. And we grew to a third store. Then we were using the basements underneath these stores. Nobody even knew what was going on. And in 1989... We bought out, that was in Rockville Center in 1980, we bought a building in Limbrook, and all of a sudden it was a big building, 10,000 feet. It wasn't a storefront, it wasn't underneath, and people thought we had a very successful business. It was the exact same business that moved out of those three storefronts, but 
but everybody thought we would have this big business then. And then uh, around 1985, I think it was right around the time you were born, uh, we opened our first our first outside office. I was in Westchester. Then we opened the second office in Flushing, Queens. Then we opened the third office in Suffolk County. And the story went on and we went to, to have uh, about 14 or 15 locations on our own. And then we started buying companies. Yeah, we bought 14 businesses along the way. Yeah, what a what by the way, again, yeah. a lot of great people around me, like you have today. Yeah, a lot of really strong people around me that helped me get this done. I just was the leader at that point. Yeah, well, we won't go jump ahead too, too fast, but I think that it's worth noting that uh, you sold your business in 2000, the, your, your first family business that you grew out of grandpa's in 2005. You already had started as a passive investor in real estate, commercial real estate, and then you had a big passion for it and started your business in 2003, even before selling uh, your former company. And then uh, when I came out of school into the recession, you kind of had a, a business that you had kickstarted. Uh, I didn't come out to work for you immediately, but we just talked about the Great Recession hit. I found myself without a job real fast. Uh, but one, one thing before I, I get there is when I was growing up, um, you always pushed me really hard from the time I was, you know, even before I was 12, 13 years old, that I always had to be working. You know, I collected my first paycheck from you, but my first official paycheck, I even still have it. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you, but from uh, Perry Meltzer and, and Rockwell Camera working in a camera store. And then I had so many jobs all the way up until college. You know, whether it was working as a bar mitzvah MC or dancer or working for our family friend, Debbie Kahn. Uh, but I really cut my teeth at 16 and started making the, the most amount of money I'd ever had when I when I when you encouraged me to start caddying. I mean, and by the way, Mixology, our business today is an outgrowth of my dad making my sister start working at the age of 13. And so, you know, that wasn't the most common thing in, in the community that we grew up in. What was like what? What made you know that that was the right thing to do, even though it wasn't commonly accepted anymore, like so, when you were a kid? So, I, you know, again, everybody has their own core values, their own family values, their own, fam their own family history. But, you know, one, you get to know your, you have to know your own children. If you were going to be a nuclear scientist, I would have had you going to school every afternoon and getting involved in the Intel Science Award, and you would have had to devote 20 hours a, after school, 20 hours a day to mm -hmm. becoming the Intel Scientist Award champion, like some of your friends from your from your school became. And they were brilliant. And, you know, you had friends that were so off the charts smart. And, you know, I think about uh, one of your friends became a doctor. That was Scott's best friend, uh, uh, just a, a genius, whatever his name is. Yeah. I don't give him credit, but, you know, there are other kids that I knew that was, you know, had different skill sets. Personally, it wasn't because of your academic ability or your sister's academic ability. I had this connection that when you worked and you got paid for it, it gave you a, set, a sense of gratitude that you couldn't even get from hugs from your parents, from slaps on the back from your friends. I just, there's, to me personally, it's not everyone's right way to go, but for me, that was what gave people the inner confidence that you need in life to be a whole person, a successful person, is you need that connection of, I do something 
I get paid for it. I wasn't a great student. I was a decent student, but I wasn't a great student. Those both were. They didn't work like I worked. They worked, but not like I worked. And but they got that gratification from the grades, getting into medical school, which was very challenging, and whatever came in their lives afterwards. For me, it was closing the deal, whether it was selling a newspaper, whether it was selling Kentucky Fried Chicken, whether it was selling Manny's suits, <laughs> working in the home in the housekeeping business. You know, that's how I got my juice. So whether it was right or wrong for each of my children. That's what I wanted to pass along to you, that opportunity to feel really, really great about yourself. And look, I don't just pass it along to you guys. I pass it along to everybody. You know, yep. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm a leopard that wears the spots the same way all the time. I don't have different stories for different people. Yeah. Well, I just remember the, the sense of empowerment of always having so much cash in my pocket from such a young age, you know, and just that was, I used to, and I, I wonder what this was like from the outside looking in from your perspective, like, being 16 years old. And at the time, this was in the early 2000s, you know, around 2001, um, you know, the internet wasn't in the mature stage. You couldn't like start up a business as a kid. And there were really only two ways to make money. Um, you could be a cabana boy or three, cabana boy, lifeguard, or caddy. That was basically it. Or work in a retail shop if you were able to get a job. It wasn't so easy. But uh, I remember those summers, catting those three summers, and it would be like out the door every morning at 530, do a loop, so 18 holes, you know, put uh, either 100 or $120 in my pocket, depending on if I uh, carried two bags or if I carried four putters. Then I had a job at the golf course, so I was working all day, picking up balls and working in the bag room. And then if I was lucky enough on occasion, once or twice a week, I would get a second loop in the afternoon, put another hundred, $120 in my pocket. And, you know, making, you know, could make close to a thousand or plus dollars a week, $1,500 a week. It was an unbelievable amount of money for a 16 year old in 2001. And every single day I'd come home and I'd pile up my money, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 on my desk. And I would put it in neat piles. And not like your sister. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, when I went to college a couple of years later, I went and I had a little cash in my pocket. And um, I just wonder what that was like on the outside looking in. Well, I'll tell you that, you know, obviously I'm so proud of you today and, and love working with you and, and innovating with you and, and trying new things. But uh, couldn't have been more proud than we were back then because we just we wanted a kid that wasn't lazy. We wanted a kid that went to work, uh, showed initiative and look, you know. You're not who you are today because of luck. It's hard work, you know? Did you have any friends at that time? Because I worked at the at the country club in our town across the street. And to say that there was very few kids like me working at the country club, most of the kids were playing golf. They weren't attending the, the country club. I mean, did anybody ever give you like sneers or snickers? At yeah, I wasn't a conventional father in that regard uh, because some people thought it was much more important to be tutored. Some people thought it was more important to take uh, tennis or golf lessons or have sports be a, a really prominent part of their life so they can get into the right college or get a scholarship. Yeah, I just, I never saw, I only saw sports as uh, an, an entertainment activity to love and play while you do it because I'm really competitive but never as a method to get out of the neighborhood. You know, obviously kids from the inner city or from uh, from homes where 
the only opportunity they have to get to college is through an uh, academic or 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 sports scholarship. They have a drive. It's like the boxer who is so hungry. Your dear friend, who's uh, and many of your friends who fight for a living, and uh, sometimes that's the only way they can get out of the neighborhood is with their fists. Uh, so. I didn't see that for my family. It wasn't who we were. Uh, your great grandfather uh, schlepped, he was only about five foot six, probably 160 pounds, and schlepped laundry bags that were 200 pounds heavy uh, over his back for 30 years. Uh, he barely spoke a word of English, but never missed a day of work. That's who we are. You know, that's how grandpa started, and it's doing the same thing. So, you know, it just, Work ethic and working. You know, how many times have I told you, you don't have to love what you're doing. You have to love working. Uh, if you love working, you'll love what you're doing. And if yeah. you connect the dots, that if I do this, this happens. If I do this, this happens. It's so funny to be sharing this with you on this blog, because I'm really sharing with anyone that would listen to the blog, because I hear you talk about this every single day on our Zoom calls. You know, you've gotten the message. It's become your message now. And now you're conveying it to uh, your hundreds, if not thousands of employees through Mixology and other other businesses. So yeah. uh, I'm so happy I passed that down to you and Gabby and Tyler. Yeah, that was uh, that's one of my favorite, favorite lessons that you taught me, which is you don't have to love the, the actual work. You just have to love to work. And if, if, if I hadn't internalized that message, I would not be here today running a women's fashion company because even today, this is our 14th year operating this business. And I, I really, the, the women's clothing is not really what I have the passion for. That's my sister's department, the fashions, the trends. I like it. I admire it. But I was able to find my own niche on how to grow this business and how to make an impact with not really loving the core thing. I think most people would get into it for different reasons than I find myself in it, but it was just the love of work and seeing that there was an area that I was able to lend what talent I had at the time, which evaporated very quickly, but, uh, and I had to go out and learn more. But uh, if I hadn't been open to that lesson and hadn't internalized it, I would not be doing what I'm doing because I would have said, that's not for me. I'm going to stick, you know, I'm going to stay in my lane in real estate or I'm going to stay in my lane in, Whatever, whatever I would have ended up doing. No, I hope you pass that along to your children uh, and your friends, kids, when they when you're driving them in carpool, as I did with your friends. You remember all the business lessons I used to get? Yeah. Give your well, friends? let me let me read your first okay. ever blog entry. You keep okay. calling this a blog. This is a podcast. Don't worry. No one's gonna mm -hmm. look down on you. But this Fine. was your first blog entry, truly. And uh, this was in 2009, so the word influencer didn't even exist. But my dad became something of a, of a hometown hero to thousands of people that we know and friends. And uh, this is what he wrote on Wednesday, June 24, 2009. Good afternoon. This will be my first attempt at blogging. Be patient with me. My focus in this blog will be to pass on to you. My tar target audience is open-minded 18 to 29-year-old career-oriented people that want to rule the world someday. What I have learned, experienced, and dreamt about in my nearly 30-year career my journey has been so much fun, and I wish the same for you as you travel along the winding road. The truth is, I have long been blogging for the past 20 years. I did it the old-fashioned way. My wife tells me I speak with everyone, anyone, and even a wall if no one's listening. I learned from cab drivers all over the world to find out how things are going locally. I did it carpooling my kids, 
and their friends, passing some of life's lessons and experiences to them. I've been known to have a conversation that figures out the world's problems on a chairlift skiing, and I hope to convey that message to you and help you figure a thing or two out about life and about growing as a person. If I'm off base, as my wife often tells me I am, use my advice as a comparison to your own strategy. I will not offend, but I'm opinionated and I will be direct. So get ready. I will be blogging right into your BlackBerry. <laughs> Dated. Uh, speak to you soon. I hope to speak back. I'm ready to take my own advice, listen, and learn. And what's interesting about the blog in 2009 is wow. that when I rediscovered this in 2016 and I thought on the blog, I would have thought that you maybe wrote 10 blog posts, 20 blog posts. But actually, as it turned out, you wrote almost every day from 2009 to 2011. So for almost two full years, you wrote every single day. And when I rediscovered this, um, I had been on my own path of learning and discovery, which we'll talk about in a second, which you got to witness. And I, uh, I turned it into a, a coffee table book. This is actually the first manuscript before I turned it into the coffee table book. I had it bound, but I made you a coffee table book. And then I got on you. I was like, you got to write a book. You got to yeah. take these lessons and you got to write a book. And you fought me tooth and nail. I have no interest in writing a book. I don't want to write a book. I have no, I don't care about writing a book. And I said, you have to write a book. And I found an amazing company to help you do it. Scribe Media. They used to be called Book in a Box. Uh, Tucker Max founded that company. And... Um, and after my persistence, you turned out coming into your own, which is a much more polished version of your blog. Some of the stories we talked about today, but it came out so incredible. And I think you had an amazing experience doing it. Yeah. And you said, as I think the point is that it's timeless because, yeah. you know, I have the saying, I say it all the time, everything changes except human nature. Human nature never changes. It really doesn't. You know, you have these horrible people like Vladimir Putin who start a war and invade a country, and you have people that defend themselves, and then you have people that are off in Africa on missions caring for the most sick and vulnerable population. Uh, you have people like us who work every day and grind it out. Those people have always existed. They're not new. They've always been, you know, terrorists. There's always been uh, none, you know, uh, uh, Sister Teresa's, the, 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 nothing has really changed except the process to get it done. My message is essentially the same today as it was when we started that, when I started that blog, you know, posting them. And yeah. uh, I'm just a little bit older, a little bit wiser, uh, a little better golfer. And uh, because of my age, I have more time to golf now. And, uh, and I have you and Gabby and Tyler running your own lives now. Not as dependent upon me. So uh, fortunately, uh, you're on your way. So I have two two quick stories. One is, not one is not wood, of course. So I have two quick stories. One is in my, when I was in college. So we talked about all these jobs that you encouraged me to get and and that I did, and it was so empowering. And then uh, I wanted to start my first business, which you encouraged me. So I was in college, and you had formed a relationship with a clothing manufacturer. And at the time, there was no like. Alibaba. There was no, I want to cut 300 t-shirts. If you wanted to make clothes in uh, 2005, it was in China. That's it. There was basically no US manufacturing. And so you had developed this partnership. You introduced me to the guy and encouraged me to, uh, to do because I, I, I wanted to make a t-shirt line. And so there I go. I go to make my t-shirt line. And I've told this story on the podcast before, but 
one month turned into two months, two months. After about six months, I did all the things that they taught me in business school. I made the business plan. I talked to the bankers. I got quotes for insurance. I had designers. I was making logos. I was doing everything in my business except one of the most important things, and that was sales. And so you said, hey, Jordan, how's that business going? And I explained to you how hard I was working. And then you said something very profound to me. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, just make it and sell it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. You go, enough with all that. You go, you go, you said business is simple. Make the t-shirt, sell the t-shirt. Everything else will come after that. And you know, in my heart, of course, I knew that you were right, but I battled you and told you that you were wrong. And I was doing all the things that they were teaching me in my undergraduate business degree. But you told me that hard truth of which I had to learn. And I never got that business off the ground, but I did learn the lesson. I did learn the lesson. I lo always love hearing you pass it down to other people. Now, every time like I'm on a call and I'm listening to you uh, mentor or talk to a group of people and I hear you say that to them and not about me, not about giving me credit, it's just how you do business today. And I say, wow, he got it. You know, it's kind of business is very simple if you keep it simple. Yeah. So I want to also be a little vulnerable and tell a story I've told a few times, second, just to back this up. So now fast forward, I was around between 18 and 20 years old at that time. And so now fast forward, I'm 28. Uh, I'm beginning my career. I'm the president of Mixology. We're on the heels of Hurricane Sandy, of which I was very active in helping make sure that there was a Mixology because it was the threat was it was going to go out of business. And uh, through some just basic, fun, basic business fundamentals, and following your advice, I was able to keep it alive, except after that, I was, my ego was like on fire. I was getting in fights with our former business partners. I was battling with you on a daily basis, and I was just totally ill-equipped to deal with it. And I was just wondering like what your impressions were of, of like me at that time, like, you know, kind of coming into my own and evolving as a leader. You know, you know that I really at the earliest, earliest stage, I threw you in the pool and told you to swim. I've never gone away from that either. You, you got to let people make mistakes. I could give you my perspective. I could tell you what I think you're doing wrong, but I also know you well enough that you kind of self-correct along the way, that you always find your center. Uh, so a lot of times I let you fall right into that. I let you, not today, because you don't need me to give you that direction any longer. But at the time, I was willing to let you trip and fall and make mistakes because I knew you'd get up and figure it out. So, you know, I think we were battling to some extent because you were 27, 28 years old, new to the business. Uh, the partner we had who had founded the company and I invested in and backed was, you know, close to the 40, let's say. Uh, been in the fashion business for 20 years had convinced you and me that he knew what he was doing. And so at times I'm listening to my son, who's instinctually a very good businessman, but not developed yet. Didn't really learn our retail business yet. Cause he hadn't been in it very long. Uh, didn't know much about mixology because you didn't have the, the history of year after year of doing it. And the business partner was telling us, right, left and center, that you were wrong, that you don't know, I understand, my gut instincts tell me how to buy, I know when to buy things, I know when to sell things, I know what to put things on price and on sale, I know when not to put things on sale, and you were pushing back. 
pushing back a lot. And uh, ultimately, the way that, forget about the ego part that you were just referring to, but ultimately, what happened was the proof's in the pudding. You were right. He was wrong. And the good instinctive sales, uh, not sales, but operations, because you've been, you don't know much about fashion, but the, your instincts about how to run the business, how to report, how to keep records, how to work on, take whatever analytics we had at the time and utilize them. Your instincts were all right, his were all wrong. And so ultimately, I backed you, I think 100% on everything. It was very, very hard, uh, hard to navigate because, you know, we had a partner and he had rights and he had ideas and he had history and he started the business, but he had bad business instincts for the most part. Very talented, very creative. Someone we really helped out a lot and I believed in all the reasons why we did it. Yeah. But when it came down to running a business, you were right. He was wrong. And the Again, look at us today, where we are today. Thank goodness, knock on wood again. But uh, so back then, why did I let you, why didn't I fire you? Why didn't I tell you that you're off base, you can't act like this, your ego's too big? You're, because, you know, I know you since you were born and you're a very grounded person. And I always have a saying about people, look who their friends are and look how they treat their friends, look how their friends treat them. And you'll know what kind of person they are. And look at you. I mean, the same friends since you're like six months old, still with the same people and love you and trust you and you trust them and love them. This is a lot about a person that you can maintain those kind of friendships and relationships. It works that way in business also. And you know our core values. We treat everybody the best we possibly can. Uh, that's not, you know, that's not BS. That's really, we live by it. Yeah. Well, I think you said something so important before, which is if it's working, then you keep amplifying what's working and you keep doing. And that's one of the simple truths. But so I'm glad you bring all that up because it's 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 right where I'm going with this. It's and it's a, it's a lot about your business philosophy. So at that point in my career, most of what I had learned was either from school or my own experiences. And um, right around that time, you took me to one of the most formative business moments of my life. We met to go meet and I've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, whoa, where's your computer? There you go. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. There we go. It's time to edit. <laughs> Keep it PG. <laughs> you could do an edit. <laughs> so you take me to a private equity investor. Mixology is very green at this time. Very young. You know partner. why I did that, Jordan? Because I didn't know much about the business, about retail either. I wanted to yep. learn as well. And so shout out to Keith Miller for taking the meeting with us and giving us some basic truths and fundamental business uh, advice that shaped mixology. But one of the things that happened in that meeting was he looked at me straight in the eye after a really nice meeting and he started quizzing me about fundamental business, fundamental retail, fundamental fashion. And I didn't have the answer to any of those questions. And he looked at me and this is the first time someone outside of my dad, who is my main mentor and coach or my business partner looked at me and said, Jordan, you're a nice kid, but you don't know enough about your business. And so I, Thank God I had started jujitsu at that time. So I knew about tapping and I knew about being humble. And I walked out of that meeting and I had two options. I could say, F him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Or I could go learn. And I decided to learn. 
And it sent me down this whole path of reading and self-discovery and, and books and books and books and finding books. Why? Because I didn't have any of the answers. And one of the things that I found when I started cracking open these books, and I, and I wrote it on the back cover of your book, was how similar your business philosophy was to all of these great thinkers. And I became overwhelmed at that time between 20 and 30 with extreme gratitude for your mentorship because I was like, oh shit, my dad knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and so the battling stopped and, you know, instead of pushing back so much, pushing back, I started absorbing even more of the lessons in this. And then I just like became this voracious reader and, and podcasts and, and learning and learning and learning because every time I le learned something, I started putting it into action. But um, one of the things I wanted to bring up, and I know that you don't have any concept of this really, but part of what jujitsu is, is you're learning these principles that are, um, they seem counterintuitive, right? They're, something happens to you, like you're blindsided, somebody throws you on the ground, and now all of a sudden you don't want that person on top of you anymore because they weigh a lot and they're punching you. And so everybody in the world's natural response is what? To push their arms out as hard as they can and push the person away, which is exactly what you don't want to do in jiu-jitsu. In jiu-jitsu, you want to frame, you want to get round, and you want to work back towards putting them in what's called your guard. And, and anybody who does jiu-jitsu knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I think you can conceptually understand that you need to do something in jiu-jitsu to get your, your balance back. That is a learned trait that you have to drill over and over and over again. And what I learned in those years about your business philosophy, which is so unbelievably rare, you only read about it from the greatest business thinkers and Stoics, is that so much of what happens to you is counterintuitive to then your natural gut reaction. So for example, the very first time that I was served with a lawsuit, it was so full of emotion. I wanted to battle. They're wrong. They don't understand. Why is this happening to me? And... Your advice to me was, do you remember what your advice to me was? Calm down. This is part yeah. of business. It's, yeah. it's every day it's going to happen. If you can't handle this, you yeah. can't be in business. Yeah. You and you basically said to me like, and, it, and you said it about some other things too. You're like, this is your job. Like, this is part of your job. Get ready. You're not going to like every single part of your job. But, but you said, it's not about you. That's what you said. Right. That's and I had this, uh, this amazing guy on the podcast. His name is Freddie Trillo. He's a, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt in Miami, and he's a now retired SWAT officer. But when he was in his early 20s, and he was he, before he was on SWAT, he was working the beat, and he was a traffic cop. He pulled over a guy, and Freddie's a smaller guy, and this is a huge human. And they had an interaction, and it ended with Freddie on his back being pummeled to death. And he didn't know any Jiu-Jitsu at the time. This is in the early 90s. And he said, the thing that kept going through my head is, I can't believe this is happening to me. He's like, the pain goes away. And right before he, he was like about to die, he's like, I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm about to die. And so that sent him down a path of learning martial arts and self-defense and learning the, these techniques and principles. And so that's a very long, long-winded two stories that I wanted to tell. But I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, how did you develop this business philosophy of kind of, they call it in, in the military, Navy SEAL, Jocko Willing calls it detachment of being able to detach from the situation and look at it like totally critically and be like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You know, anyone who says that's a natural instinct is a liar. Yeah. It, you have to achieve it with wisdom and time and experience. Uh, I've had those gut wrenching 
early career situations in my life as well. I also was blessed to have a great mentor, my father, who was a steady hand, honorable guy. Uh, you know, when you're honorable, it makes it a lot easier also. If you know that you don't tell people to do things dishonestly, if you wake up and look in the mirror and know that you're looking at the, the guy that does things right every single day, it makes it a lot easier also. So do accidents happen? Do things bad in business happen? Do, uh, do people slip and fall? Do people uh, feel that they were you know, mistreated in business and sue you legitimately or illegitimately? These things are going to happen. When it happens to you the very first time, as it did to you when you were very young, it's shocking. It shocks your whole neurosystem. You just feel like, oh, my God, this is, hurts me to the core. As you get older and as you become the teacher and as you are required by the circumstance of your job to be the steady hand in no matter what the situation is. it. I was there, and I'm almost going to tears when I say it, but I was there for my team on 9-11. My whole, at least mom and I were going away for our 25th anniversary. We were in the car when we found out about 9-11. My first instinct was not to run home. My instinct was to go to the office and be there for all my staff. And we all huddled around the television because there was no cable. We huddled around a television that had an antenna and watched what was going on. And we hugged each other. And what did I have to do that day? I had to be there for my staff. Where did I go on that Saturday and Sunday? I went down to the, to the, uh, down to the World Trade Center to volunteer, to help out as much as I possibly could in whichever way I could. And I wasn't doing that only for myself. I was doing it on behalf of every one of my employees everyone that worked for us. So when you're in a leadership position, it's your responsibility to be as, as strong and as calm under the worst circumstances. And that's what, your, that's what the similarity is with your martial arts. So you, you would say that you just learned it over a career and just from grandpa and grandma. Well, and just Some people never learn some people, yeah. it's just not in their DNA. Uh, some people are going to panic at the first opportunity. And especially if they've had panic in their life, they always expect to panic again. They think anytime anything happens, I go to panic. And, you know, that's who they are. You know, that's what they're about. I, that's not my DNA. My DNA is to go to, let me figure this out. I got to calm down. I can't go crazy. Uh, yeah. You know, that's where your similarity in martial arts is. When the crisis happens... My first instinct is slow down, calm down, and figure this thing out. Because I know that every dark cloud passes eventually. In my heart of hearts, I know no matter how, unfortunately, things are horrible in life, things do happen in business, but they do pass also. So, look, I've had some real difficult times in my career. And guess what? The cloud, every single time, the clouds passed, the dark clouds passed, and the sun came out. Mm -hmm. so, you know, really in my core, I believe that's going to happen. Helps me get through some tough times. Do you think that some of it is just uh, foolish, like Grandma Norma optimism? That's your mom, who uh, everything's wonderful, everything will be okay. Like, this was that, like, you know, now I look back on it in my life, she was such a, a centering force for optimism and positivity, and, and everything is good. 
Um, it wasn't is that fake, where that comes from? It wasn't fake until you make it for her. But yeah. that's where, as a matriarch, she felt that was her responsibility to make everybody feel everything was going to be all right. Yeah. Uh, but she also had the other part of her personality that uh, that mom feels, you know, was artificial to us. She always right. told us how great we were. <laughs> <laughs> so mom says, oh, you, you believed it. <laughs> She's like, not that good. <laughs> she tells me every day I'm not that good. So, yeah, you know, look, it's a family business. It's our family. Every family has the exact same story, the same characters. Yeah. You know, that they have their own story. That's ours. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, there was a, an episode of Joe Rogan one time. I can't remember who he was talking to. One of his like best friends. I can picture the guy's face, but he was talking about, they somehow started talking about family businesses. And they go, is there anybody a bigger douchebag than the son who works in the family business? And he's rising up in the suit and they're like clowning on him. And then all of a sudden Joe Rogan goes, but he goes, but you know what? You got to watch out sometimes because sometimes that father, they do not let that son step out of line and they keep them on the track. And he's like, those are the ones that actually become the most successful people. And I like that part of the, the story much better. My, you know. two, my two greatest successes, I know we're, we're rounding this thing out, but my two yeah. greatest successes would be that you never say that I helped you get there, that you did this on your own. That would be my greatest success, that you and your heart know that you built this thing, that every day you work so hard to make it happen for the people around you, for your family, for all our associates. I hear you saying it every single day, how you try to lift them up, build their careers, give them career opportunities. I did the exact same thing. I'm so proud of you when you say that to them. Uh, and, you know, if you, in your, I'll tell the one story that I think this personifies, it, it, it just brings it to life. A number of years ago, when Tyler was getting his first apartment and moving out, and mom, being a mom, wanted to buy uh, him a couch because he said he needed a couch. And up until that stage of his life, all his furniture was paid for by us, whether it was in his in his home, uh, in his bedroom, or it was in his dormitory. Uh, and he was going out and getting his first apartment. And uh, so he said, Mom, come Let's go looking for a couch. And she said, I'm taking Tyler for a couch. And uh, I said, you're not buying him that couch. <laughs> and she says, why am I not buying him that couch? Because I said, every time he sits in that couch and he pays for it, he's going to feel like a king. And if you don't take that away from him. So I say the same thing to you. This is who I am. This is who you are. Everything you do, you know you built it yourself. And I'm so proud of you. And mom is proud of you and your family and friends are proud of you and nothing was given. It's all earned. Well, it wasn't as nice to me, but I'll, I'll it's a funny story nonetheless. But I think it's an important lesson of which my, my wife always tells me it's one of the things she loves about me the most. But when I was graduating from college and I wanted to move home, your answer to me was, are you a man? You're going to move home? You want to come live with your mommy and your daddy? He said, go out and get an apartment. And uh, I ended up finding an apartment with the company that I was working for uh, in Olympia House, where I ended up living for 12 years. <laughs> but that was that was the same story, but through, through the frame reference for me. But I'm so grateful for that. And, and my wife always told me from the day that she met me, um, I'm not bragging about myself, but I'm just telling you the straight up truth of how I won. My wife was way out of my league. And I said, hey, I'm going to my parents' house this weekend. Do you want to come visit? And 
and when we got there to the, my parents' beach house, she said, you know, most people would have said, do you want to come home to my house this weekend? And you said, you want to go visit my parents' house this weekend. So it's, I think it's the same story, just in a different way, but it's straight from my, from my parents, you know, never always making me go out there and work and earn. And, and really, I, I just, I, I'm so grateful for that. I love it because you know how much I love business and how passionate yeah. I am about business. So yeah. I think it's just like jujitsu. I think it's a learned trait that anybody can learn. And you've watched how many people we've inspired through all of our companies rise up and, uh, and mentor. So it's, pre well, it's pretty you really cool. Peel, you really peeled back the, uh, the, the layers today. I think we've opened up a lot uh, and bored a lot of people out of their minds if they pay attention to this, but you know, our story is every family story. And if it's not their story, you know, then they could aspire to take the parts of it that they like and say, as I always tell everybody, you don't like it, use it as yeah. your baseline. Don't do what <laughs> well, we did. Sometimes you do things for, for the audience, but if you do something for yourself with all your heart, I think there's people who, who care, care about it. And, you know, one of the things we wrote about it in the book we wrote together, which we, we glanced over, this is it. You and I wrote about this, which chronicled my first 10 years in business. We told a lot of the stories today, but um, not everybody was lucky to have a dad like Glenn Edwards or, or grandpa and their dinner table conversations weren't family business meetings at every single one. And so, you know, a lot of the people and the young people that have reached out to me through this podcast, this is the only chance they get to hear this kind of stuff. You know, not a lot of people talk about have these kind of conversations openly outside of the family, outside of the table. And uh, my dad alluded to it before, but he didn't explain it. I do a, a daily Zoom call for my whole team at Mixology where we talk about these exact same things every single day. And some of the people, they just, it doesn't connect with them and they don't care. But there's other people who they listen, they hear the messages, they want it so bad, they want success, they want to grow a business, they want to grow their business. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed that people tagged onto this podcast, that they like it. And I know they're going to love hearing from you and hearing your stories because you dropped a bunch of gems. Well, this hour was a treasure for me that I'll always keep. And uh, I really appreciate our relationship and working together every day with you. Yeah, it was great. The first day I started working for my dad, he said, every day should start with a hug. And they're not all easy. And, you know, you have to you gotta get it ready when you work within a family business. It takes a lot of skill and discipline to navigate the complexities of, and the relationships and the egos and the good days and the bad days. But I wouldn't have it any other way. It's all, always what I wanted to do from the time I was a baby. I never would have had it any other way. And uh, and thank you so much for all, everything you do. I love you. Love you.